Doug keeps on wanting to do my makeup. I, I really want to. And I told him that if I'm completely incapacitated. <laughs> like in a coffin. Like in a coffin, so, yeah, I'll let him. That'll be good. All right. <laughs> anyway. Be, I am coming. Yeah. We're, okay. we're in the grave. You can do it. In the grave. Unless I can still use these three fingers. But I. I, <laughs> I feel insulted by my ability. You could do my hair. Can I do your hair and makeup? And <laughs> yes. pick your wardrobe? Yes. I do pick your wardrobe. You mean for my. My gravestone no, photo? No, I kind of want to do it every day. <laughs> so when we live together. <laughs> when we live together in a condo. In a condo. Just do my makeup I'm going to do your makeup and hair every day. Okay, I'll let you do it once and then I'll That rate doesn't you. feel right. I'll rate you one okay. to ten. This podcast represents the opinions of our hosts and guests. The content here should not be taken as medical advice and is for informational purposes only. This podcast also does not establish a standard of care, doctor-patient, or client relationship. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast or website. And because each person is so unique, all listeners are encouraged to connect with counseling and medical professionals for assistance with their personal journey. All people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect the privacy of those involved. Welcome to We're Not Fine. I'm Dr. Talia Jackson. And I'm Doug Jensen. We thank you for listening every week to our deep and thought-provoking conversations about relationships. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of We're Not Fine. We have with us an amazing guest today, Sterling Mosley. Um, and one of the topics that we are always fascinated by that our viewers have really loved is to talk about narcissistic personality and narcissism. You know, and as you probably are well aware, given that you are an expert at this, which I'm going to let you tell a little bit more about that expertise in your background. But the truth is, this is a topic that everyone is talking about. I think especially since the t uh, election of 2016, not to point fingers, um, but we certainly had some very visible narcissistic behavior in front of us. Um, so it's kind of been thrown out so much. So Sterling, welcome to the We're Not Fine podcast. Please tell our viewers all about you. Yeah, um, so I, um, I'm i in Oklahoma, Norman, Oklahoma. I teach at the University of Oklahoma. Um, and uh, I was kind of all over the place academically. I studied uh, English for my undergrad. And then um, in my master's degree, I got a little bit more yeah, focused, I guess, and started studying. Um, I studied counseling uh, and focused on personality and personality disorders. So I did that in my Ooh. master's degree. And then... Um, yeah, yes, yeah. I, I love personality typologies. Um, <laughs> I love personality typologies. Um, I started that in, in high school. Uh, specifically, the Enneagram um, is one of my favorite personality typologies. And and so then my PhD, I, I actually did my PhD in communication, um, and also taught in women's and gender studies and stuff talk queer theory and all kinds of things. So I've, I've, I've dabbed a little bit in, in this and that, but um, finished my PhD in communication and then kind of went back to my psychology graduate school roots um, and delved more into personality psychology and uh, got really interested in, um, I've always been interested in empathy as just a concept and, um, you know, kind of identify as a highly sensitive person, I guess. And so I've been around some narcissists in my life, um, in my, in my family and also uh, professionally. And so, um, it, it just seemed like a good time to kind of converge my interests. And so I kind of combined my interest in the Enneagram personality typology, uh, and, uh, narcissism and came out with, uh, 
did a research study and then wrote a book, uh, The Narcissist and You and Everyone Else. Um, so yeah, and right now I teach in, I teach human relations. So I teach classes on, of course, personality. Um, and then I also teach like uh, uh, cultural awareness and social justice wow. classes like that. So lots of consciousness raising kind of stuff. So, so yeah. This was probably in all the questions that we're going to talk to you about, Sterling, probably my favorite question, because I remember in graduate school a long, long time ago, we talked about personality disorders. We were in the Axis II section of DSM-4. Um, and, you know, we were talking so much and my professor was talking about, like, is this organic? Is it environmental? And in these 28 years of practice that I've had since, um, I've just been monitoring that and thinking about it and try to process, like, what do I know about correlations between people's history and families of origin and modeling? I've just been so excited to kind of understand it. So I'm dying to ask you that question and get your yeah. sense of things, not only from a personal and professional. Yeah. What what makes someone narcissistic? I mean, that's a, it's a big question. Um, I, I, I tackled a little bit in the book. I think that um, I look at it holistically. So I definitely think that there's biological, for some, there's biological factors. I think there's, um, you know, some brain stuff. We know some things about, um, uh, you know, the circuitry that goes into forming empathy sometimes is there's a deficit there for many people with narcissism. Um, and there, there was a research study I remember reading about even trauma or stress uh, in utero for some uh, people, there was a slight correlation to that and, and some people developing narcissism. Of course, it can develop a lot of different ways as well that aren't narcissism. So I think there's definitely a biological component to it um, for, for some people. And, and because I have also known people um, that I did for, that I interviewed for the study that had narcissistic parents and um, you know, a narcissistic grandparent, and they can kind of like see it throughout the, the family line. So maybe there's some sort of inherited DNA kind of genetic component to that. Um, and then of course we can look, I think that the one that's easiest for, um, you know, I think for us to, to study is environmental factors, right? So what was your, what was your childhood like? And what, what was, you know, how, how developmentally what happened? And, and many people that I talked to that, um, were aware that they were narcissistic or even if they weren't and I was mm. aware that they were narcissistic. <laughs> um, they, they often talk about um, sort of early experiences where there was, there was a strong theme and I'm going to talk about this in the next book a little bit more. I didn't have time in the first one, but there was a strong theme of like the moment where they kind of remembered shutting down um, vulnerability. Uh, like they were embarrassed or something happened, maybe they were punished or or something happened. And it was usually something they interpreted as embarrassing or- um, Like shameful or-, or yep. Shameful, okay. yeah, exactly. Yep. And they okay. just sort of decided never again. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And, and so then it seemed from that, and it's pretty early. I mean, for most people, it will seem to be around the ages of between seven and 10, right? And they were just like, nope, no more. Um, so I think there's definitely an environmental developmental part of it. Um, and there's some interesting studies about uh, uh, privilege and, and class and narcissism, right? It, there's a higher incidence of it in people with a lot of privilege, um, whereas it seems to be less 
uh, so with people that are in, you know, impoverished communities, although other things can happen. So I, I don't know. I think it's a combination of all of these things. You kind of throw all those things in a bag and shake it up. And and you get a narcissist. <laughs> and out comes a narcissist on the tube. It's like Willy Wonka. Um, <laughs> I am riveted by this part of the conversation. You know, I've read so much over the course of my career as well about the origins of this. But you reference some pieces like that 7 to 10 age gap. Mm the shameful or embarrassing circumstances that might lead somebody to shut down their vulnerability. I'm going to process that for a while after this podcast, um, because I'm really kind of fascinated with the development of how people cope with that and what they do with that. And that narcissistic personality traits can evolve from that is just a really interesting piece because some of the more well-known people in our culture um, who are clear narcissists like I've, I've read about their backgrounds and going to boarding school and being removed and, you know, any any sort of and the, the privilege piece that you reference, mm-hmm. um, I'm fascinated by. I um I think the correlations are, are, are really interesting that it right? wasn't safe to be vulnerable, to be themselves, to have any feelings other than yeah. being completely together or strong right. or in control. But then that inability to empathize and that that difficulty, you know, regulating those give and take relationships. Tell you the thing too. I mean, think about the uh, kind of manifestations or the implications of being privileged. Yes. Like the expectations that come from that. Well, and that's exactly what I was thinking about. I was very curious about the results of those studies because I was thinking, hmm, could it go either way? And I do wonder if there's something environmental about like the people, what I'm picturing, people with more privilege, the children and the grandchildren and the great grandchildren are seeing the way they are in the world and the way they treat others or the way they talk about other people that maybe don't have as many resources. Yes. Yeah, I think there's, you know, there there is a strong... Um, correlation <clears throat> between, uh, you know, people in more impoverished people tended to just dis- demonstrate more compassion towards people that don't have as much, right? So it's like there was more, those empathy circuits were a little bit more developed, whereas generally, and I, I'd have to go back and I wish I was that person that could cite the you know, the study of the year. I'm not, sorry. Um, It's out there. Page Um, 25, part B. Right, right, exactly. We're so disappointed. Um, I'm kidding. Right, it's out there. And, but I did see that there was a, there was a correlation also between, um, you know, people that had more privilege and just those empathy circuits not firing as quickly. Like, it's like, well, I have mine and, and, and not necessarily that they're trying to be hurtful, but there was just an unawareness of, you know, what they didn't have, right? Or what other people didn't have. And and so, yeah. So I'm kind of curious of too, like going back to this vulnerability, which again, I'm kind of focused on a little bit. I love it. Um, the lack of like being able to tolerate that. So this need for validation, this need to be associated with powerful people that need to be fed emotionally and, and socially for people who are narcissistic, um, I'm curious if you believe that to be a simple defense mechanism, you know, in in trying to trying to uh, regulate differently or try to recover from that lack of being able to be themselves. So when that vulnerability, I guess I'm I'm, I'm stuttering with the words. When that vulnerability is not something people can show, do they require that extra affirmation in order to manage that? Ah, uh, that's a good question. Yeah, I think that I think that the lack of vulnerability. Um, yeah, I think that the shutdown 
then requires an excess of admiration or um, external validation from others because you can't, um, you're not getting fed in the ways that we can get fed by being vulnerable, right? The emotional vulnerability allows us to, to sort of absorb it at a deeper level. So oftentimes I think narcissistic people will seek the superficial validation as a um, substitute for oh my God. that That's internal. So... Sterling, by the way, thank you for understanding my awkward question, um, but you answered it exactly right. Um, exactly wow. what I was thinking and well-spoken. That is what I'm thinking. Well, because in order to have self-esteem, yeah. you need to be seen and loved. And if you can never be seen, you yeah. can never have that feeling of being Validation. truly loved. Right. Absolutely. And so, yeah, that whole idea Regarded. of yeah. the surface, like I'm starving for validation, but there's literally Teflon around me. And so I can, it never gets to, it never gets to the parts that matter. So it's, it's interesting, Tally. I'm actually thinking about people in our life that we know, both of us, that tend to be narcissistic and how that. Are you going to start naming names? I'm not going to name any <laughs> names, but I'm thinking very clearly about what some of those people experience. Yeah. Someone very close to you. Um, and their story. My dog. It's your dog. That's what I'm going to go with uh, for the safety of this podcast. Um, I really love that part. It actually really mm -hmm. explains something so deeply. Um, I also appreciate, wow. I mean, it's interesting. I would say, Sterling, too, you, you kind of sound like my professor in grad school. Like, we're not exactly sure. I also love that you said that it can be biological for some people, yeah. um, which right. implies not other people. <laughs> but so there's right. like this question mark, right? And, and so those of right. us who are clinicians doing this work, it might be, you know, do what we can to understand the origins of this and help people understand it. Right. However, you know, and this is where this isn't even on here as a, a question, but the general philosophy that narcissists are resistant to treatment, that treatment does not help these people. Um, with this information, it feels hopeful like you'd be able to help people understand you did not receive that affirmation and validation and you weren't able to be vulnerable to be seen and mm -hmm. regarded. And so that might be something that we work on but that implies that people can do that work. So, yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I, I do think that, I mean, as you all probably know, I think I do think narcissism is somewhat treatment resistant only because they don't present a lot in clinical settings, right? Because they're like, I'm fine. <laughs> I don't know what your problem is, but I'm fine. <laughs> and how um, dare you so, tell me that I'm not? That's exactly right. Unless it's like a <laughs> exactly. Court, exactly. court mandated or their spouse is going to leave right. them or their children won't Ugh. speak to them. But it still doesn't work, yeah. right? Well, they have to really, really, really want whatever that leverage is like they really have to want to not lose their spouse or their job or go to jail or lose their children otherwise no they don't show up yeah. in therapy yeah I, th I think i've found that a lot of times what you can work with with narcissists is um behaviors because they, they don't want to be for the most part, depending on what type of narcissist they are, they don't want to be in conflict with people all the time either. I mean, they kind of want to smooth sailing. I just want to do what I want to do, you know. So I think sometimes if you can help them learn different strategies for communicating or relating to other people, that can go a long way in helping their relationship dynamics. Um, it's interesting, uh, Doug, because what you were saying, you know, when you're talking about helping them figure out the origins and 
um, I was just, I kept sort of thinking about like holding the space for them and being empathetic towards the narcissistic person, because it's hard to do for a lot of people in their lives. Um, but they're still people, right? And so I think definitely if you're working with them in any capacity, even though they can be antagonistic and difficult, like remembering that they're, um, I, I don't remember who it was, but somebody talked about like basically narcissists is like a deficit of self, right? And so if you can look at that empathetically and realize like, okay, this person just has a lot of armor on and um, then it can go a long way. And I do think it helps them loosen their defenses, right? They kind of get their um, hackles up, right? With most people, but if you can be empathetic, then they can kind of let it, let it down. Maybe a little slightly vulnerable. Yeah. Slightly vulnerable, but any, and what I've found Sterling in my work is that any challenge, like any challenge to this may not be effective. Um, I recall one time, one of my clients brought in their partner and significant other who was clearly a narcissist, um, in to just kind of see like, what can we do with this? And what I did as an intervention was to say, so what if my client told you this? What if they were to say this to you? How would that feel? And my and the the partner was like, that would feel really shitty. And I said, well, that's what you said to her. So I want you to like, right. like I really tried to do some insight oriented work, right? Um, and I remember the person just stared at me for a while and they're like, well, that's shitty. I'm like, grab onto that grab on and that try to remember that. Towards empathy. It did not last. No, like because it was, yeah, my yeah. hunch is that saying you hurt someone's feelings is not is a criticism. But it's also like I don't I don't think they care. I think if you yeah. said like I don't think if they come into therapy and we're saying we think that you're hurting people's feelings and don't you want other people to enjoy being around you? Yeah. I'm not sure that would be as powerful as would you like to learn more about interpersonal effectiveness, which is sort of a DBT? It's like it has mm -hmm. there has to be a point because they have to have a reason to want to connect. Or what if we confronted it? Just say, you're such an asshole. I don't think they care. I, 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 I don't think that they would care. I think that they would think you are sensitive. <laughs> or they would gaslight me and say, I think you're an asshole because you said I'm an asshole. That's what right. Sterling, yeah. what would happen? <laughs> Play it out. <laughs> well, so as as the person who had, you know, my grand, I mentioned my grandmother being narcissistic, and I, I a couple times, and and I, so I get the impulse for people because I recently taught uh, narcissism in my one of my undergrad classes, and they had a lot of questions, and they're like, well, what if we just tell them off and tell them that they're narcissists? I'm like, I mean, you can. <laughs> they're not going to care, yeah, um, and they're probably yeah. going to turn it around on you. Um, and you're going to be frustrated and they're going to be fine. Right. And, um, and I've, cause I've done it. Right. And I've done that with my grandmother. And, and so, uh, Talia, what you were saying, like they do, they don't care. Like I have been like, you're awful and you're selfish. And it's just like, <laughs> I don't care. I don't care. Um, and, and it just made me more mad. Um, but what I do think works is because the empathy circuits aren't firing the same way. Sometimes you do have to show them like one for one, like if someone did this to you, what would you feel like? And then they're like, well, that would piss me off. And then they, it clicks like, oh, well, I just did that. Sometimes that works um, depending on how, you know, how much they care. Right. Which is exactly what that right. intervention was that I did in that office that day. And it worked for a moment. I mean, the person just stared yes. at me for a moment and I'm like, is it, is, is it, it resonating? Are you, are you taking it in? <laughs> The minute they left, they're like, yeah, that wasn't yeah. helpful. I'm like, oh, 
Yeah. And did they not come back? Oh, they did not come back. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yep. There has to be a lot of joining yeah. at yep. the beginning with someone who has narcissistic traits yep. so that they feel like you see the best in them. And then it's like walking on eggshells to try to get in through all the side doors. I still haven't been successful, though. Like people don't stick with it because the challenge has to come at some point, right? Like you, our job is to challenge toxic or dysfunctional patterns. And the minute that even if you build that rapport up yeah. and you've fed them enough to make them feel comfortable, like at some point when you turn the table and like, do you wonder if that's helpful to you or right. helpful or hurtful to the other person? What? But that's why the yeah. leverage is everything. They have to not want to lose the thing they're going to lose if they don't get it, even if it's just behavior change and not actual internal change. Well, that's the question. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree with both of you. I think that um, they do. They are very because they objectify everything and people. They do have to see a point, right? Like if you do this, then you can get X, Y, Z, right? But um, yeah, I, it, it's it's difficult because as soon as you challenge them, many of them, uh, that's when they get they get defensive, right? And they're like, it's a betrayal to them, right? Because you saw them, you were their friend and you saw them and you understood all that they're going through and then all of a sudden you're not, right? Shattered. And they polarize. So it's, they're challenging. I mean, it's... <laughs> well, and then there's this other question and, you know, when you work with someone, I, I have taught every person that I've supervised clinically, it's really helpful to have people understand what's going on for them. So trying to let somebody know this is your diagnosis, this is what the personality traits are that we're seeing is tricky. Yeah, very um, tricky. Because you at some point want to, you know, tell that person very openly and honestly, like what it is that's going on. And I, I find myself always training people, like go through the criteria, help them understand, is this what you experience? Is this something that happens for you? Um, and so there's a part of this that I, I ultimately think that trickiness about like using that word um, can really trigger yeah. people, right? So we kind of referenced the gaslighting piece in, in kind of passing here. And, you know, Sterling, what we want to do too is kind of talk about some common things. Everyone is talking about narcissists. Everybody is talking about, you know, that word. And, you know, I'm kind of fascinated with how people make sense of it. But there are some common yes. terms that are used pretty frequently when we talk about these people. One, of course, being gaslighting. Um, and I've had people specifically say, what is gaslighting? I want to understand this. Um, what is your definition? How would you describe that? Um, my definition would be a sort of conscious, and I, I say conscious because I think we all, um, this, this was a little bit of a debate in my undergrad class. So um, I, I think we all um, have different perceptions of what reality is, right? What's going on um, and different accounts of different uh, happenings in our lives. So it's quite normal for me to remember something slightly differently than for you, both of you to remember something, right? And I think oftentimes when that happens, there's sort of a meeting in the middle of like, okay, well, I don't remember it that way. Or, oh, I remember this part, but not this part. I think gaslighting is a sort of conscious attempt to uh, shift or change someone's reality or narrative to suit that person's agenda. Um, and oftentimes, I think when we're talking about narcissism, gaslighting is a way of, for A, the narcissist to not ever be the bad guy or... Uh, or be to be held responsible. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Or be responsible or be bad. 
Um, and so the effect is of changing the other person's reality to fit that the narcissist narrative of who they want to be and what they wanted that event or situation to reflect. So you about. feel like it's conscious. I do feel like a lot of times with narcissists, it's, it's, it's a conscious. I, it's uh, a really great question. Yeah, I'd like say so most of the time it's conscious. I would say sometimes it definitely happens unconsciously. Um, and the reason I say conscious is because what happens, I've encountered this with narcissists myself, is when you, I have tried to say, okay, well, you remember that way. I remember it this way. Um, and then they still try to get enroll me and what their reality is and try to make that my reality. And then it becomes sort of a conscious, almost like a bullying kind of a tactic. So, so that's, I think that's why I use that, that term conscious. But what, what about you all? What do you think? No, it's really think? interesting. I was just going to say, like, if you approached that person at that point and you said, so do you, are you aware that you're trying to change what I feel or what I think or what my experience was? I think they would say, no, right, I believe right. that what I'm saying is factual, right? And yes. so do I think that there's some subconscious piece to that? I do. Like, I think, yep. I, and I agree with you, Sterling, like I, one of the things I'm loving about this conversation and I knew it was going to happen this way is that nothing is black and white about this. Right. Like there's this gray yeah. zone where there's these questions about like, what is it? I love what you said. I think there can be both parts. I think people, people can be consciously aware that I'm debating somebody and I'm bullying somebody into believing what I believe. But I think the ultimate like reason for it or the underlying piece of it is more subconscious potentially. Yes. I think that's yeah. the hard piece. Like, I don't think people yeah. can understand the origins of why they're doing that bullying. Yes. Right. Because there isn't as yeah. much self-awareness. Yeah. I think I also feel like it must be subconscious because I mean, I, I completely agree, but yeah. we had it. So I had a little pre-meeting with somebody that we're going to have on the show. He's amazing. And he is a self-proclaimed um, he calls himself a managing severe narcissist. So he's going to be talking about his experience. But in just That's going to be fun. It's going to be <laughs> amazing. But it, just in the few moments that I was having a conversation with him, he was talking about this experience of still, like after he's done all of this work, he said lies just pour out of his mouth. And he catches it. <laughs> Sometimes as they're coming out, yeah. but mostly it's like he'll say a thing and be like, well, that was a lie and that was a lie and that's a lie. And now he just calls himself out, but he can't yet get in front of the lie before it comes out of his face. It's that's, amazing. Well, that's I can't wait to interview this person, by the way, Sterling. So it's going to be really fun. Um, but the thing that I'm struck by yeah. in that is if I lie and I know I'm doing it, it's easy enough to say, I'm sorry, that was a lie. Like, right. and so the question is, why does he not do that? Like, what is it that propels him to keep doing this and digging a hole deeper? I cannot well, wait. Well, no, I think he's saying it out loud now, but it just- Like he's saying- Oh, that was a lie. But I think like it Like I goes, can do your makeup. No, that's a lie. <laughs> Doug keeps on wanting to do my makeup. <laughs> I, I, I really want to. And I told him that if I'm completely <laughs> incapacitated- Like in a coffin. Like in a coffin, so, yeah, I'll let That'll him. be good. All right. <laughs> anyway- I am coming. Yeah. We're, okay. we're in the grave. You can do. In the grave. Unless I can still use these three fingers. But I, I, I feel insulted by my ability. You could do my hair. Can I do your hair and makeup? And <laughs> yes. pick your wardrobe? Yes. I do pick your wardrobe. You mean for my my gravestone no, photo? No, I kind of want to do it every day. <laughs> so when we live together. <laughs> when we live 
them together in a condo. In a condo? Just do my makeup. I'm going to do your makeup and hair every day. I can't. I'll let you do it once, and then I'll. That rate doesn't you. feel right. I'll rate you one okay. to ten. Um, I'm going to. I'm going to play a narcissist with you. <laughs> oh my! I'm kidding. He's going to gaslight me. <laughs> And Let's role play what narcissism looks like right now. Another term that I feel like everybody Are you changing the topic? In. You don't want to play narcissist, Doug? Keep going. Actually, I'm sorry. Keep going. I would love <laughs> to know more about this. Sterling's like, "Let's go." Let's I'm going to sit back and Are you do it? Do you want to pretend to be I'd like a you to give me a lot of affirmation about my ability to do your makeup. I think you're going to be really good at Oh, thank you. Now, how many feel- epidermal layers did it sink in? There's that fuel. There's that narcissistic fuel he needed. Thank you. <laughs> I, thank you, Sterling, for observing that. No, but I need to know how many. Not much. I need a lot more. Epi- epidermal layers. Okay. Because if it got really I feel really like you're gaslighting your me now. And you're, and you're trying. <laughs> do you have a soul? Oh, I'm going to do some more narcissism. That feels questions. hurtful. Oh, I love you. And you'd be great at doing makeup. But I still want to know about love bombing. Sterling, I win. I won that one. Okay. <laughs> love bombing. God, I love it. I know. Well, because I feel like, is that a very subjective term? Is it like I wrote you a song or I got you a bouquet <laughs> of 12 long stem roses? Or is it like... Or like when you just told me that you loved me? That was... That I was, was that was sincere though. It oh, was. just in that moment, I do. Oh, that. I love you too. Is this your broken shoulder? Nope, this one is. You want to feel it? It's very bumpy. Yeah, it's very anyway. lumpy and bumpy. Yep. So, will you tell us what you think about the continuum of love bombing? Continuum of love bombing. Um, this one's a this one's trickier because I think that I think some things that are sort of normal, like you know. Uh, People that, you know, believe in love at first sight or are very romantic or amorous, right? I think some of that stuff has gotten lumped in with love bombing um, and it gets a little fuzzy. Um, I think uh, there's definitely a continuum. I think there's, you know, in that romantic phase of any relationship, whether it's a romantic relationship or a friendship or a job, right? There's that, the honeymoon phase. Um, and, and I think that we all can do, you know, say long range things that maybe won't come to fruition. And, you know, I, we're going to be together forever, that kind of thing, especially when we're younger. I think that kind of stuff is normal. Um, I think love bombing. uh, So I I have a a good example. I have a friend who uh, was started dating uh, this man and he was, you know, very charming and he was very wealthy and he, on their first date, he wanted to fly her to, I believe it was Morocco um, for their first date. And she was like, that's just so romantic. And I was like, yeah, okay. Red flag. Um, so, Red it's flag. also really extreme. Yep. <laughs> right, right. It was a little extreme. And then it was this whole fairy tale, right? They flew private and they stayed in a five-star hotel and it was just nothing but the best. And this is literally their first date. And, and, and he's saying, you know, he's promising things and she's completely, um, uh, sort of out of her mind with this sort of blinded by this fantasy, right. That he's weaving. And, uh, and so th- they ended up dating for a couple of, uh, a couple of months. And what happened was, is because the initial phases of the relationship were so intense and so extreme that when he started to uh, cut that kind of behavior off, right. He wasn't giving her these extravagant gifts or he didn't call her for three or four days 
what it activated is that sort of addiction center in the brain, right? Where it's like, wait a minute, like what, what happened? Like, where's my hit? Right. And so she thought she was doing something wrong. And then, then they were in the dance, right? The whole narcissistic toxic relationship thing. Um, that to me was a good example of love bombing. I mean, extreme, but, but still love bombing. And so, so that would be, you know, I think it is on a continuum. I like that you said that, Talia, because that's, that's the way I think of it. Yeah, I do love the word continuum too, but it kind of makes me think a little bit. And when I think about love bombing, the whole point is that the love comes in a way that's extreme and intense. And I'm going to say as a result of that, not genuine, not authentic, not not kind of a normal progression of an organic connection with somebody and development to a relationship. I remember we had, remember a mailbag from someone where she was like, oh my God, he took his guitar out and sent me a song. It's too much. Right. It was a love song. Like he's like, you know, way over the top. And I'm thinking some people would love that. Yes. That's so like, that's really simple. And like, yeah. but that's the continuum. Right. That is. And it's different for everybody as to how you experience it. Like, I think some people would feel that overwhelm. Right. And I think, right. Please fly me to Morocco. I know. I know. <laughs> I like for anybody listening. Love please. bombing. Um, <laughs> and yes, then I'll call, I'll call you Sterling so you can keep me mindful of how really irrational that is. And it's grounded. And it's um, not going to thank you. Right. I will call you for groundedness, Sterling. Well, I mean, uh, what yeah. you brought up that I think is really important too is there is this like the fantasy, the fairy tale. Yep. And just like this idea of being swept off your feet, love at first sight. And it is this sort of template that I think many of us have in our head. So when we think about falling in love, it does right. feel like that. But yeah. every honeymoon phase does end up coming to an end. And then it gives way to who you are when you're not waking up two hours early every day to drive across town to get that cup of coffee and drive someone to the airport before you get kind of comfortable. Mm. Right. And then right. that's right. your relationship. I have so much to say about that. Like there's a part of me yeah. that thinks too, like the right connection or the right, the, and I'm going to say, right. Um, like if there's someone that's in that range of being the right person for you, I don't think the organic piece gets lost in it. Mm -hmm. And I, I think, yes. you know, in the case of your friend though, again, it was like really huge. It was really over the top. It was a gesture that felt over the top, but it could have turned out okay too. But it's, right. that's why you have right. to keep, I always tell people, you have to keep mindful. Like, how do you feel in this relationship? Do you feel like right. it's progressing in this right way? Is the communication effective and is it adaptive? And you know, that's where I think this love bombing can turn into something really awful. Um, yeah. So the next term is breadcrumbing. Mm -hmm. Which I've never heard. Um, do you remember Hansel and Gretel? Yes. And then don't they get like eaten? So I think this is related. So please, <laughs> I knew, I knew I'd get a nod from you, Sterling. Please tell me, what do you think? What do you think of that term? Yes. Um, yes. Breadcrumbing is, so it's the, um, giving you a little bit, right? So it's, uh, if, if I'm even kind of tying this into the love bombing thing. So say you love bomb at the beginning. Um, this actually, my friend got breadcrumbs, right? So then he went cold and then he would do a little bit here and there, right? He would send flowers or whatever when, just when she'd be like about to break up with him, or she'd be just so angry that she couldn't handle it. Then he'd give her a little bit, right? And then it would get her back in the dynamic, right? And then and then it would be okay and then she'd get mad he'd go cold and then he'd buy her watch or whatever and oh. so there were these little yeah. it keeps you engaged in the dynamic and and i i'm even thinking of 
Um, I, my best friend worked for a narcissist for many years. Um, and, uh, and she would hardly ever praise her, but then occasionally she'd say, well, that was good. You did a good job with that. And because you never get it, the dopamine centers in your brain are like praise, praise, right? They, they liked it. And so that's how I think of breadcrumbing. It's these just little, little bit to keep you engaged in the dynamic so that you don't leave, but it's just, it's not enough, right? But we're subsisting on breadcrumbs, basically, from the narcissist who's doling it out. Yep. It reminds me of those rats in those horrible experiments that just press that, like, I don't know, that pleasure sensor. You just get a little bit. Just get a little bit, yeah. and they starve to death. So you guys, if you're dating this person, you're going to starve starving. by waiting for those breadcrumbs. Yep. Go get a burger. That's all I yeah, have to Yeah, don't say. do the breadcrumb anymore. Get the whole fucking <laughs> get get whole whole piece of bread. <laughs> get the whole get big the whole foot sub. long. Don't get the half. <laughs> no. Go to Subway and get the whole foot long. Flick the crumbs right, right back in their face. Yes. Oh, that's, yep. oh, that's, that's a whole nother category. Bread crumb flicking. When you want to give it back. Okay, well, what about this one that I've heard of even less? I literally have no idea what this is. I don't either. The Darvo okay. method. Ah, yes. Um, so Darvo is, and I always have to look up the, um, <laughs> it, it basically, it's where the, it's deny, attack, and reverse victim offender. So basically what happens is- Wait, slow that down, the, Sterling. Would you say that one more time? My brain I will. needs it's again. Deny, <laughs> attack, reverse victim and offender. So what happens is the narcissist, um, so say for example, you accuse the narcissist of doing something selfish um, and then they deny that it was selfish and then they attack you for calling them selfish. How selfish of you to call me selfish? How mean of you? I can't believe you would say that to me after all the things I've done. And then they've become the victim and you've become the offender. So that's the reverse victim offender. Oh, um, it's, my God. It's a yes. very common uh, method that, that they use. For, that's why you don't call them narcissists to their face, because then you're going to end up being called a narcissist and you're going to feel like a terrible person and... And then you're going to leave and go, what happened? It's almost turning the tables. I might it call is. it turning the tables. Yes. Um, turning I, the tables. It's the signature move. I didn't know that's what it was called. I didn't either. I can't believe you it's said It's a little clunky. It's it's a little clunky. It's, it's a little clunky. And that's why I'm like, I think I need an easier phrase. Like, it's just really turning the tables on somebody. And when they've... Yeah. When when you appear to be a victim, there's that thumbs up again on our screen. Um, oh, no, it's so funny when you know, it's it's really an interesting thing. I love how easily that came up for you, um, and I did not know it was an acronym. So I'm very excited about that. And that is, it's really just kind of reversing, like when you did something that harms somebody, and then you reverse it and say that they're harming you for you know accusing them or or, or calling them on the carpet or you know letting them know that their behavior affected you somehow. I got to tell you the interesting thing, and this is what I want to say about this too to our viewers, is that if you end up doing that in conversations with your significant other or your friends or your family members, it doesn't necessarily mean you're a narcissist. It might mean that you're just kind of feeling defensive mm -hmm. uh, because it also, I think, uh, really indicates how people get defensive about some things. Like, I didn't do that, yes. right? So it doesn't necessarily mean that right. you're a narcissist if you end up feeling victimized right. by someone exactly. 
being affected by what you did. So and sometimes it's like yeah. levels of emotional maturity of just being able to mm-hmm. sit in the possibility that you did something that wasn't your best move. Yes. Right. Right. Yeah, for sure. Yes. Yeah. I think that's a good point. And all of these sort of things we talk about in the narcissist toolbox, like we can all do them one off or occasionally. Um, I think what's, when we're looking at narcissists, we're looking at a pattern of behavior that, where they use these things frequently. And that's, that's the set of tools they use all the time. Right. Which Sterling kind of brings us to our next question for you um, about when we determine this is a diagnosis Mm -hmm. and it's something that meets the diagnostic criteria for personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, or if it's really just something that is a part of someone's dynamic and 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 that you know again like determining traits of yeah absolutely where somebody has traits of versus because you know and i remember in grad school i always tell this funny story i remember we were going through the diagnostic manual as part of the uh, of the class and we got to the personality disorders and i finally looked up at the at the group and i said does everybody feel like you're all of these? Uh, because right. we all, and I remember like yes. taking a big risk, like I'm going to be ostracized if no, everybody else is like, no, we don't have any of these OC, OCPDs or. Well, this um, makes me a little worried about myself right now. Does because it? what does it mean about me that I went through the access to yeah. stuff and I was like, oh, this sounds like everyone but me. Um, it means narcissist. <laughs> uh, Sterling, so, yeah. what do we need to do with her now? The Sterling oh, diagnosis. Oh, no. <laughs> um, it says a it's lot. It's bad. Maria, and we're going to save that for another episode. Right. That might be a whole other uh, thing to unpack. Um, no, I, I, I did the same thing, Doug, I, when I went through the I, – I had that thing when I went through grad school and counseling, and I thought I had everything. I Like every week I was like, well – this is me. I am um, NOS, <laughs> not otherwise specified. Right. You're NOS. Right. I love yeah. it. Um, so as far as the question of when does it cross over into a clinical diagnosis? So I am a little bit of the camp that I, I kind of want NPD to be taken out of the DSM um, because I think that uh, I think because for me, I think when you diagnose, right, it's, you know, it has to be causing some kind of impairment uh, for the person. I think for most narcissists, um, unless they're court ordered or they're, you know, threat divorce or they're getting their kids taken away, that's obvious impairment. Um, but I also think it's a lot more prevalent than most of us. I mean, I, I think the statistics are like 1%. It's, I would say closer to 15 to 15% of people have some degree of narcissistic traits. Um, because it's so prevalent, I, I prefer to think of it as like a like an overlay, right? A personality overlay. And we talked about the Enneagram types before. So I think, you know, you get this personality types and then they all have, you can have this narcissistic overlay. I think it exists along a continuum, right? Where when you get into the extreme levels, um, that would be probably more where we would look at clinical diagnosis, right? Where they're so narcissistic, they can't function in the world. Um, There's probably other things going on that are exacerbating that. Uh, I don't think that's the majority of people that, struggle with narcissism or they don't struggle. We struggle with narcissism. That's right. Narcissism. Um, And so I prefer to think of it as like an antagonistic personality style rather than uh, a diagnosis. And I think, and the reason I think we should, it should be evaluated is in terms of taking it out is because people are so uncomfortable using the term. Sometimes I, I, a lot of people are like, I'm not qualified to say that. I don't know if, and I'm like, are like, 
is it a cat? Like, does it have ears and fur? Looks and, like you know, a cat. Like, what, like, Sounds like a call cat. It a, let's call a thing a thing, right? So, and people are so uncomfortable. Even, you know, I have family members who are like, I don't, I don't want to say that. I'm like, but is that what it is? <laughs> because yeah. they think they're not qualified to call them a narcissist because they're not clinicians. Um, so I'm a little bit of that camp. I, I, you know, I could argue it both ways, but uh, I would say if it's causing impairment, you know, they're getting their kids taken away or they, you know, or they continuously uh, have bad relationships that can't succeed because there's a need right. for reciprocity and mutuality in any relationship. Yes. So, right. Yeah, then, Sterling. Then we could look at that. Sterling, yeah. it's a fascinating conversation yeah. about whether or not it should be taken out. I think, you know, my vote might be to keep it in. And part of it is I do mm -hmm. think terms like depression um, mania are overused in our culture. I think people use these terms so quickly. Like I'm feeling so manic. I've heard from so many people. I'm like, are you really? Yeah. Because that that almost right. minimizes the incredibly discomfortable discomfortable part of yes. being manic for people who experience bipolar at that severity. So I don't I don't love how quickly we throw out terms. I would rather people probably leave it to us. I'm probably on that side of things like leave it to the professionals yeah. to do the diagnostic part because it's a big label. And I think, again, since yeah. since the 2016 election, <clears throat> I really think people are throwing it around so quickly and so easily. And if yeah. they don't like somebody's behavior, going back to your comment about like it's an averse type of personality yeah, or like interaction, that. I like it, too. Antagonistic. But how I mean, all of us could be that. So I don't think all of us are narcissistic, but I think it's being overly used at this point. I mean, I like love when you did not think any of the personality traits. It was everybody you, else. Even I know. I'm perfect. <laughs> ah, whereas ah, others have issues. Oh, no, I feel really, free to mailbag us about that. Viewers. I really love the idea of it being a personality style. And I never thought about the impairment piece because it's causing more external damage than maybe internal but yeah. the way that i think about personality disorders versus traits of is well the whole characteristics all to get like the whole package but also right. there's like a self-awareness piece of someone who is unable to accurately see themselves yeah. so it's the person, and this is great holiday timing because yeah. everybody's having dinners with a lot of people and, it's, and yeah. other things, but it's like the person in the room that everybody walks out of the room and goes, my God. That was you, a lot. Oh, that was a lot. Yeah. Or like, oh, that person <laughs> has a personality <laughs> disorder of some sort. And yeah, if like, you don't hear anyone saying that at your dinners, it might be you. I'll tell you honestly. I always <laughs> tell people like if you're struggling with someone, if somebody and I, uh, I remember when I was doing my training, and I might have mentioned this at the introduction part of our episode today, but I remember when I was training with my supervisor, who was really just very effective in helping me understand, and I was able to be vulnerable and trust him. Like I could tell him if I was attracted to a client and I was struggling with that, or if I was really struggling with kind of seeing what a diagnostic piece might be. Um, the part that was so amazing is I found myself wanting to punch a narcissist. Like I just found myself really agitated and wanted to just beat the shit out of them. And I'm like, okay, well, that's not helpful. And my supervisor helped me understand, like, listen to yourself. Mm -hmm. This is what other people yeah. will experience like with this person instrument. as well. I'm an instrument. Yeah. Like I use that, you know, yeah. count, that counter-transferential experience and, and make sure that you understand that this is what people in their life are, are experiencing. Yes. Please. Yeah. No, I was, I was going to, I was thinking as you were talking, both of you were talking, um, 
so as I'm starting, I'm writing my second book and I, I had an experience at a Starbucks uh, where there were these teenagers uh, ordering food um, and, and coffee and they were talking about um, that they were in some, I don't know, discord group or, you know, whatever kids do things. Um, and they were in something and they were talking about um, <clears throat> how everybody else in the school didn't like them because they were self-aware narcissists and they were saying, these are like 17, 16 and 17 year old kids, right? Um, and they're like, they're just jealous because you know we're better than them and we are more confident. And we're not bogged by, down by our empathy. And they were like, oh it's also God. ableist because we are narcissistic and that's uh, like, it's like being autistic. And I was like, oh no. What did you so, do? I, that's what I want to know. <laughs> oh, I just took notes because I'm running about it like that. Um, so, um, so then later I went on and I explored on the sort of weird dark side of this narcissistic, self-aware narcissistic community where there's a big thing now where they're, um, because there's a DSM diagnosis for them, um, they're like, it's discrimination, right? It's ableist to talk about narcissism in the way that we're talking about it now. And you would, you know, and so... I was like, oh, that's scary. Um, that is so, really scary. That's that's, that's kind that, of what kind of tipped me to like, let's take it out. But then <laughs> um, would because, you say that a self-aware narcissist speaking the way you overheard them speak, isn't that more of a sociopath, like wanting to do harm? I don't know. I feel like it's, you know, you're, you're mentioning an age group that I think of as emotionally immature, right? So yes, I'm not sure yes. what that is. I think it could be. A, I'm just going right. to. I'm not big on the word phases, but there could be a phase that these kids are going through. That there could be. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was like, I took into account the age. Yeah. But the fact that they even latched onto that as a thing. Yeah. Um, and they have this group where they all call themselves narcissists. I was like, that's disturbing to me. Um, but more disturbing was the ableist thing. Oh um, and and I'm kind of trying to attack that in my, in my book. Which it, by the way, that's never going to stick because as anybody knows, if there was any sort of like discriminatory, like process approached by them or formally filed somewhere as a disability or something like you can't discriminate it against me because I'm a narcissistically personality <laughs> disordered person. I mean, that's, I great. would say, no, you're going to need a clinician to actually verify that. And someone coming in and right. saying, I'm a narcissist and this is why is not going to meet the right. criteria for a narcissist. But do so, you know what's kind of interesting to tell think me. about? Tell and me what it is. <laughs> I'm going to tell you. Are you going to tell me? I'm going to tell you guys what's so interesting. That you don't think you have any personality traits that are troublesome? Uh, you no, don't, by the way. Only glorious. You, I do. I do have do quite a few. Oh, I know. No, you do not. And I'm, no. I know them. No. Uh -uh. No, um, no here's, what's, here's what's interesting. Is that there are are some narcissistic traits that are interwoven in some like autism spectrum disorders yeah. that is really interesting and i wonder if it brings it back to what you said sterling about the empathy circuitry and i love i've never yeah. thought about it like that but is that and you made it sound like that's something that can be developed that it's lesser in some folks, but how, yeah. what do you think about that piece of the empathy and how do we boost our empathy? Yeah. Um, so I'm glad you mentioned the autistic uh, sort of correlation. I talk about that in the book. Um, 
there's a, a researcher named Simon Baron Cohen who was actually Sasha Baron Cohen's cousin or something. No, um, way. but anyway, he researches autism um, and empathy, and he has a book called um, uh, something about evil. I'll think of it as I'm talking. <laughs> um, but anyway, <laughs> I, I, I read it, <laughs> um, and he's talking about people with um, what he calls zero sum empathy, like zero nothing, no empathy, right? And he, I, I disagree somewhat with his. Uh, research and then he's saying you know autistic people don't have empathy and i don't believe that to be true i i think their circuitry is different the way that they access empathy like for example i have actually quite a few autistic friends um and a lot of them for example one of them says well i have to think about people as animals um if i think about them as like a cute animal then it allows me to empathize with them more or one uh one of my friends thinks about them as like stuffed animals and then they're like they're cuter it's softer it's less so and I think about someone like Temple Grandin, who, you know, maybe a lot of people didn't think she had a lot of interpersonal empathy, but she had a lot of empathy for the cows that she was helping to not feel pain and terror when they were being slaughtered, right? So I think that the way they, some of them, the way that many of them access empathy is uh, just different, uh, which is hence neurodivergent, right? As opposed to narcissism where... Um, uh, I do think sometimes there's a conscious choice not to empathize. Like it's like, I refuse to use those muscles. Um, and, but then when they go through, you know, really human things, like we all go like grief, for example, um, sometimes you can see kind of an opening for them. They'll be more feelingful. They'll be more vulnerable. Some of them. Um, and, and so I think, for a lot of narcissists, it, because it's that armor, there's this, because they don't want to be vulnerable, empathy is vulnerable, right? It feels vulnerable to empathize with other people. So because they're closed off to vulnerability, they're often closed off to the uh, the ability or the desire to want to develop their empathy. Whereas I think a lot of autistic people, um, as far as the ones that I've encountered, like want to know, like, what is it everyone's feeling? Like, how do I do that? Like, how do I get there? And you can sometimes work with them to to develop how they access their empathy. That's a fascinating. It idea. is fascinating. You know, um, Sterling, we have had the most amazing guests yes. on our podcast, and yet every once in a while, there are people um, who I just want to talk for hours and hours and hours, and that would be you. Um, I would love to continue this dialogue. I would, of course, love to talk about other topics. I love how you talk. Mm -hmm. You have a, a deep compassion about mental health. You have a very intelligent way of looking at diagnostic pieces. I love that your uh, word that you use uh, a lot is sometimes or not always, yeah. uh, because I right. really think that people get into such stuck places about diagnostic, but also treatment strategies. Um, and I love your ability to stay in that gray zone and think about things in a very mindful and thoughtful and compassionate way. This has been oh, really you. what I was craving yes. from this dialogue when Talia let me know that you were going to be our guest. Um, it was really an enriching conversation. I am delighted to have had it. And I hope our viewers feel oh, the same way. You. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was a pleasure. You for having me. Yeah, it's just a yeah, pleasure. It's been it, a lot of fun. It yeah. has been yep. so much fun. And yep. I also, I think you're so fantastic. And for our guests that are interested in the Enneagram, yep. Sterling and I dive so deep into narcissism in the Enneagram yeah. and 
he has 27 different types of narcissism and how it plays out in the different Enneagram types. So we're going to put that out there as a bonus episode that you guys are going to be obsessed with. I believe so, too. It was a really, really great conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Sterling, tell us a little bit about how our listeners can find you, where they might find more information from you. Um, yeah, so I um, so I have a my author website, which is st- just sterlingmostly.com. And then I also have an Enneagram consulting and coaching business called Empathy Architects. Um, and I do that with my best friend. And um, we've been studying the Enneagram for 20 years. And we have a podcast called uh, Do You Know You? Um, Ooh, I love that name. All about talk about the Enneagram and all that stuff. Um, And then also on Instagram, we post a lot on there. Um, And so that's at Empathy Architects on social media. One of the better, one of the better podcasts, I'd have to say that I've, I've done. So you guys are a lot of fun. So I love it. Yay! 